Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. I'm joined by Nader Naimi, who's the Head of Dynamic Markets and Portfolio Manager at AMP. Nader, welcome. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. Oh, look, it's always a pleasure. I, I thought, you know, the, the way to probably kick off this conversation today is to really get a bit of a, a background on, on what actually got you into markets in the first place. You know, what was the driving factor? Is this something that you always wanted to do? Yeah, Alex, um, you know, I was uh, always a mathematical kind of guy when I did my school. I loved maths. And uh, so, you know, as I was studying, my math teacher suggested I do actuarial studies. And I kind of looked into it. And it, that's how I started my, you know, university degree in a very kind of a quantitative discipline. And my first job, in fact, was uh, a quant analyst. And um, so I spent a lot of time um, modeling markets. So I thought, you know, coming out of university, I thought you're going to have the silver bullet. I've studied all the actuarial studies, all the maths, and I should be able to uh, model the market. So I spent a lot of time with stochastic models and, you know, it, 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 some way to forecast the market. And, you know, after five years, I just realized markets are a lot more than just, uh, you know, being able to summarize them into statistics, right? So that was uh, I kind of had the foundation, which was the science part. And the next phase of my career really went on to the, the art part, which was understanding what drives market, what makes the market, right? What makes the market? Obviously, uh, people react to different different news and everybody's got different time horizons. People play different games. Um, and, uh, you know, and, 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 and at the same time, having that fundamental or quantitative lens is important. But again, so the, how markets perform, what, how they do it and what drives markets fascinated me and uh, i spent many years trading markets um and realizing that you know I, I couldn't just use fundamentals so what happens with technical sentiment are important and so anyway so i just de- developed this passion the love markets and uh it's just i'm very fortunate because uh, i've been able to do a role that uh, it, it just i'm excited to get up and do it every day obviously you know there are some really really stressful days you wake up shaking you know worrying about what happened in the u.s overnight and we've gone um, i've gone through plenty of cycles uh but that's part of the game right but uh it's that that no two days are the same and that's what excites me and uh, it's all about how people behave Let's go back to your comments around sort of this art and science trade-off. And we see a lot of people that come into the markets or that are traders uh, who either in the basically the feeling camp and they and they really rely on sentiment and technicals. And then you've got the other people that are very much the scientific, um, scientific uh, crew that really look to um, you know, trying to understand a model that can, can work out the market. You know, how do you blend those two how do you blend the art and science you know which yeah it's it's very important exactly right and you know there is a balance and then you've got to blend the two and you know uh at, at the heart of it uh, the fundamental law for active management is that you know uh, the, there's uncertain future is uncertain right um it's, if we knew the future uh, we wouldn't be able to call what we do investing 
right? Because uh, the whole point of investing is just because the future is uncertain. And as Yogi Berra called it, you know, the future ain't used what it used to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so basically, we gotta have to, as, as portfolio managers and investors, we have to be able to deal with risk and uncertainties. And I think, and that's what the di- di- science and art differentiate. So, when you look at risk, I mean, risk is obviously very important. So, risk is about the quantifiable probabilities and outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. So, we this is the science part. This is a science science we can sort of quantify, uh, you know, chances of, for example, rain. Uh, but then there is uncertainty around that. And the uncertainty is about a degree of belief and subjectivity, right? So, for example, you just give you an example. Uh, we know uh, COVID impact on the uh, supply or uh, availability of toilet paper. Uh, paper will be very, you know, your colleague wouldn't will be even 1%. Right. So if you just actually quantify that as a risk of, uh, you know, COVID impacting supply of toilet papers, you wouldn't give that a much probability. But that's the subjectivity around the uncertainty that makes difference. Right. And that's art. And, and a lot of people resort to you know, uh, the survival, you know, the, the, the way we are uh, built to survive. Uh, so if, for example, uh, if everyone else rushes, rushes out for toilet papers, you join even though you know the probability of that is low. Um, so you can see that the risk part is stuff that we can quantify, we can put probabilities on it. The uncertainty is the, basically, the uncertainty is the bio beholder, right? So that's the art part. That's stuff that you got to feel. Um, and in the world, you know, you have some things are accountable, others you just have to feel out, right? In other words, you know, gathering information in science filtering out the noise is an art um, and that's very important so you can put a percentage on it it's very hard i mean obviously different strategies there's so many different strategies some are purely quantitative some more uh, discretionary uh, but i think a, a kind of a 50 50 approach makes a lot of sense because you know but for example you look at a very very basic stock analysis right they they look at uh, net present value right net present value is a science but identifying the trust and passion of a CEO is an art. Right? So it, it got to be able to bring bring uh, bring the two together. Um, and you know, we just uh, the way I look at it is just we can uh, measuring what has worked in the past is science. That's what we all do. Everyone does it. There's a lot of insights, but the foresight, which is the art part, is understanding why things could be different, is an art. Right. So that that art is is really really interesting because we we started to learn particularly around you know the Trump presidency the power of narratives and you know, the power of the media you know how much is art now almost being you know convoluted by media out there and then media then drives these narratives that then ultimately drives the market to move um, and particularly with the amount of retail players that have become accustomed to to trading um, and investing yeah, how much has that changed the game. Absolutely, it has. I mean, in, in a way, it really depends on the time horizon. So, what we have now, we have a world that is just saturated with insights. Insights being real, true information, but also fake information. Some people get insights based on fake, you know, data, uh, information. Some real, but there's a lot of insights. We can't. That's the thing. That's what we have. Try everybody just out there on the screens getting the information, and there's a lot of insights. But at the same time, there is a profound lack of foresight because everybody, as you said, 
everybody reacts to the same thing. Um, and everybody just basically, as you see, you have, you see big trends in markets. So, I mean, as a, you know, trend following strategies that just close their eyes and follow a trend, you know, it probably, it, it has, has worked, but, uh, the problem is, you know, uh, some of these things go way too extreme and we've seen historically markets are inefficient. The reason markets are inefficient is just when everybody ends up doing the same thing at the same time. And, um, so it just has the. A perception of being safe because everyone else is doing it. But as we know, as we've said before, uh, liquid is a coward, right? It's, it's a good saying. Liquid is a coward because it, it disappears at the first uh, sign of trouble. Because And that's the thing. So when the traffic is one way, it's okay. We can react to news. Everyone does the same thing. Uh, but again, so there is, I think there is room for uh, to, to kind of uh, exploit that by just spending more time and developing foresight, right? And I, I think well, there is, there's a profound lack of foresight right now because, like I said, uh, there is a lot of information out there um, and everybody is reacting to the same data. Media, as you said, narrative, media plays a massive role. And, you know, you have retail right now. Everybody's got access to their apps on the phone and they could just react to news and, and uh and just uh, make uh, investment decisions. Uh, so it, it really leaves room for long-term investment opportunities. Uh, but in the short term, you know, the short term short termism of uh, not performing like the crowd is becoming problematic. And I think that's where you really need to understand your clients, and, and clients need to understand you and your investment philosophy and process. Is it fair to say that there's somewhat of a pendulum? that swings between art and science in the market because for a few years we saw a huge amount of quant funds kicking off and they were doing extremely well. Um, in the past probably two years, these quant funds have, have really struggled or at least you know, when you look yeah. at the median results, there's still some dispersion there but the vast majority have, have really uh, done poorly compared to what they've done historically. You know, is this yeah. part of now the market becoming too quantified that it's actually almost falling over? And there's too much crowding on particular types of strategies? I think so, Alex. I think that there is a lot of that. There's a lot of crowding, the quantitative. So in the past, remember how we all started with uh, the real advantage was this. We call it the uh, uh, high-frequency trading and you algo so if you So the, the arms race was to get the closest you can to the exchange or have the fastest computer so you can actually trade very quickly. So that was the game. And a lot of those guys made money. And then when the whole thing, everybody had access to fast computers and everybody did the same thing, that particular strategy started to struggle. So then they moved to more of a quantitative trading of factor investing, what have you. Well, so initially, like, I mean, we, we've seen a lot of the back tests of those factor investing. Historically, there is factor, there's premium in every one of those factors. But when we do, there's a, you know, there's a catch 22. When we measure those, uh, premiums is when uh you know it's just when they were measured the act of measuring something impacts how it performs in the future right so what happens is everybody goes, has got access to factors right uh, whereas before we would just did back tests and they worked because no one else was actually following them. now everyone's following them everyone's got access to it um those uh quantitative factors quantitative models are just crowded as you said um and when everybody starts doing the same thing um, we say when smart beta becomes dumb beta, right? Because everybody's doing it. Um, and, and again, and so like you said, though, the pendulum, you know, swings. I agree because I, I remember 
the quantitative quantitative investing investing became such a big thing again in remember 2006 before and we had the quant quake um, we had the VAR shock and what have you before the GFC. They were quite big. So it just, it just, you know, th- th- those quantitative models really suffer uh, from a the profound, you know, called a model uh, uh, mo- model uh, problem, which means, you know, the individually, when they look at things going wrong, the probable reason that's not very high. When the things go wrong and cascade, they impact on each other. And then when everybody's in the same idea, it impacts them all. Um, and that's, I'll call that a model risk. And that's what quant funds. And uh, so when the space gets emptied again, you know, frost comes out, then there's room to do it again. But you're right. It just goes, this, the pendulum swings um, from, you know, very crowded to, you know, just all of them being out. Is there another problem that when you talk about model bias, that actually you've got this institutional investor bias where, the structure of, of these funds is all becoming the same. The way they go through their investment process is the same. The type of rebalancing is the same. The way they use their VAR models and risk models is the same. That ultimately yeah. you're creating this homogenous group um, and they're so large that uh, it's moving the market in, in very large large ways. Uh, absolutely. And that's the thing. We saw that. You know, we saw that in 2006, the VAR shock that we saw. Um, Everybody is in the same thing. They measured risk the same way. Volatility is low, everyone's positioned the same way. And when things move, it just becomes self-fulfilling. Right. And um, and uh, and I think is it's becoming a little bit worse now because I mean a lot of those value managers have gone out of business, right? So in the past you had this cohort of managers where just sort of when things sell off, there'd be buyers on the other side. Uh, because not everyone's systematic trader or you know, passive passive investor uh, or benchmark investor. Uh, so you had some, uh, you know, automatic stabilizers. Now a lot of those active managers you've seen, they've just been out of business. Uh, active strategies have have underperformed. I don't. I'm not saying it's all doom and gloom and it's bad. I think there's still a lot of a lot of stabilizers in the system. Uh, but as you said, the risk is everybody's doing the same thing, and um, and then the risk is uh, it if it if unwinds. It can unwind very quickly. I mean, we had there was a real, real threat of that during the COVID pandemic, and if it wasn't because central banks and governments really getting out there and just uh, acting as circuit breakers, that it could have gone out of control. And the good news was they could do it because uh, at the time there was no moral hazard, right? So because there was no one's fault, they could just could do whatever it takes. But if it happens because of a you know a blow up uh, in a fund and cascades. Then the moral hazard is a lot higher, and then I don't think the central bank's governments would be able to come out and do what they did during COVID. I'm interested in the other moral hazard problem because we've actually seen probably three very large blowups in in probably the last twelve months: Melbourne Capital, Green Sills, mm-hmm. uh, and then most most recently we've got um, Archigos. Um, and I guess many people are wondering why are these guys blowing up at a time when the markets are at record highs? Um, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, that's, that's I mean, this, they, they, their amount of greed and leverage in the system is huge, right? So fortunately, what, what happened to um, some of those funds, it really didn't have this kind of a systemic impact on the broader market. Uh, but that's the thing. Market, you gain these blow-ups because of, you've seen the games that have been played in the short squeeze versus, uh, uh, you know, a short covering, short squeeze. Um, and uh, so, you know, 
all these different kinds of players with leverage, right? With a lot of leverage, and that's the thing. So you just had to blow up because one position, there's not much room for error, right? So that's just, and that's the thing, usually. And that's a great sign of speculation. Usually happens at peaks, right? And that usually what pricks that bubble is central banks tightening. This time we don't have that. And central banks have told us they're not going to raise rates. So we're going to get this isolated blow-ups here and there because money is cheap, right? And um, the they trend is up. And so it just encourages a lot of greed and uh, leverage we've, we've seen. Um, but it's it, it just fine to us. You can make a lot of money, but you could just lose <laughs> a lot more than that. Well, um, the other challenge yeah. that many of these funds have is that it's not just the leverage, but they're becoming very concentrated on their bets. And they're also yeah. moving into areas that are probably not liquid. Um, and the illiquidity problem starts to come to vogue, uh, particularly when they need to unwind these these trades. Um, and yeah. because yeah. of the homogenous group of buyers and sellers, uh, it's very hard to be able to get out of these trades. You're right. I mean, there's some really small stocks that we've seen in uh, areas that, you know, they're heavy short positions and everybody's in the same position. And then everyone tries to cover at the same time. There is not enough liquidity, and you get this uh, uh, this kind of uh, uh, fund blowups. I, I I kind of don't think this is a big, broad, systemic problem. There are some smaller funds that have these big bets in small areas, and they could just, they will. We're gonna see more of those things. We're gonna see more blowups. But I think that in a big picture, the big money is in areas where it has benefited from falling bond yields for forty years. Right, so that is the part that everybody is exposed, and I don't think that will be an accident waiting to happen. I think that will be a slow bleed. Right, we've had forty years of falling bond yields benefit. Nobody can imagine anything different, right? And um, all the portfolios, global fund funds, you you go measure duration in portfolios of clients and institutions, just global portfolios. I, I, I think it's not an unreasonable assumption to say, you know. The, the duration exposure is, yeah, well, in, in funds is the highest it's ever been. Um, so you have very high duration. And by duration, I mean allocation to private assets, right? Allocation to uh, growth equities, which are, you know, long duration growth stocks. They're very heavy in benchmarks, right? So benefited from falling bond yields. And obviously allocation to all the bonds, right? Uh, so they, the, the duration exposure is so high at the time that most likely we've seen the low in bond years. I mean, obviously, you know, you, uh, we've said we've seen the low in bond years many times and it hasn't happened, but clearly this time seems to be different. And I was, I was saying very different to what we have, you know, I mean, I'm sure we discussed that later, but there's a lot of things that makes this turn different to what we've seen in the past t- at least 20 years. So, um, and that's where everybody's positioned, right? So that is, and that's if we see a massive spike in bond years all of a sudden, then that would be that would be just really painful. That if you get forced exit in some of those private assets, that would be painful. I don't think that's possible to get a, a sudden spike in bond yields. But like I said, I think that would be a slow bleed and underperformance. Um, when it comes to those greed and leverage and you know being in small stocks and low liquidity things that people need to get out in a hurry, uh, I think that's not big enough substitute market to to pause a systemic risk runner. But what is what happens in this marketplace where we've just got such large asset owners in the world, whether it be super funds or endowments and so forth? They're so large, they don't really have such a, a flexibility to be active. 
Um, and ultimately, they become long duration holders of assets. Uh, they don't yeah, really have yeah. the flexibility, um, particularly yeah. when you become a two hundred or three hundred billion dollar fund. It's very difficult. Exactly right. And and gets even worse when we have the government sitting just saying we're going to measure your performance every month, every three months, and put it in papers. And um, if you underperform, you'd be you know some of the short term performance measures that you know they've been put against on those funds. It's hard because then everybody will be kind of scared to take big deviations, right? Or be ahead because you got to go onto the music plays and then you know so and then you don't have the not only you don't have the flexibility because you're too big as you said but also uh from a career risk point of view you don't have the appetite so again so that becomes a really that becomes a slow bleed because you can't move quick enough to those things and um uh, the good news is there's a lot of good performance buffer for some of those funds because you benefited from 10 years but for somebody who comes in now the next 10 years will be very challenging uh, because, as you said, it, there's not enough flexibility to shift exposure to areas that benefit. Maybe when interest rates go up or bonds go up or inflation goes up, uh, long duration assets, very, very sticky, hard to get out. Uh, I mean, we, we say these assets are long term, we don't care as long as we get the income. But we've had the benefit of getting income as well as capital gain. We haven't really seen a period that we got the income, but you know, with bond yields going up, those valuations, those assets will be challenged. And that will be very, very slow to respond. Again, so I don't think there's going to be a force to exit all of a sudden, everyone is trying to get out, but under performance and, you know, slow bleed, it will, it would, it, it gonna, it's going to go for a while and um, it, it's tough. And I think it would take, you know, after five years into it, then people start thinking about, okay, well, we got to do something about it, right? And the thing is, when we are so peer measured, the ability to think the future and ability to have foresight is very low, uh, you know. And uh, to your point, it, it's it's going to be tough. What what does that mean then, from portfolio construction perspective? Does that mean that funds need to totally disband in the sixty forty and really think about how to build a portfolio of almost different types of strategies? You know, in one, uh, how does that change? Uh, absolutely, that would be the way to go, but it would be very hard to encourage that, right? So imagine trying to go to super fund and say, encourage that just abandon 60-40, right? It's impossible because you know what happens if you're wrong for one year, right? Then you just, <laughs> you know, I think it's one of those things that, you know, you can't just, you know, ring the bell and say, this is the time, but you know, structurally, directionally where things are going, but it, you, there's no appetite to be wrong, uh, even for six months. Uh, so which means... Um, you know, just breaking that 60-40 and then changing the structure to invest across different sectors even, right? Um, or at least, you know, diversify your position across areas that actually benefit from rising bond yields and areas market that actually probably have negative impact of, we feel that, you know, will be negatively impacted. So that that requires big, big, big changes. I don't think there'll be appetite for it, but you're right. Ideally, that's what, yeah. You got to break down the 60-40. First of all, you, I think every one of those funds, they really should go and just take a good look at the allocations and look at the duration exposure, right? Duration exposure, you look at the duration through your allocation to global equities, which is a lot of it is tech stocks now. Even emerging market equities, a lot of it is tech stocks, right? And tech stocks, by definition, they're all really long-duration stocks, um, subject to massive regulation risk put that aside as well and then the allocation to all the private markets and bonds you just measure the duration of your portfolio uh, and then compare it against history and see how high it is 
and you put that against where yields are right now. That massive gap that we have, high duration, very low bond yields, if that gap starts to just slowly, slowly converge and close, that will be a pain. That will be just a pain. And I think you're just going to see how you address that high duration uh, with low yields. So, and start introducing asset classes of portfolio that benefit from rising bond yields, right? Um, and, or, or and I think the other group just are convinced that bond yields would never go anywhere because there's too much debt in the system. Nothing's going to change. We're going to have a little bit of inflation and we're back to deflation. Well, that's a call they've got to make. But I, I think uh, if you do the numbers, chances of you know having seen at least a f- five, six years of high bond yields and high inflation is very high. And, uh, and portfolio construction, construction needs to change. The biggest question then is really where does inflation go? And I guess anecdotally, when you look at uh, stock prices or you look at collectibles or you look at houses, inflation seems to be pretty rampant. Uh, on the CPI numbers, it looks pretty flat. Um, at what point does yeah. the market start to you know, factor in that, that inflation is rising and that the central bank will need to do something? Yeah, absolutely. As one of those things, when you look at the fixed income market, fixed income, inflation expectations are start, have been going up but definitely not in line with what we've seen in, um, you know, in prices or asset price inflation. But that always been, has been a problem for the past 10, 20 years, right? We've had asset price inflation without really uh, you know, CPI increase. And um, so every time central banks have hiked rates, it's led to another battle of deflation, right? So, but another thing, when you look at the, the drivers of that uh, disinflation over the past, 10 years, you can just sort of say globalization and demography play the key role, right? Um, and on that one, you first look at China. China from the 1990 to now, China had a massive impact on global supply of labor, right? When you have a massive supply labor, so you have all the production globally shifted to China, right? Chinese pays, you know, obviously labor was cheap. And at the same time, in a developed world, everything's going all the uh, investment or there's a push to services. So you have this massive uh, disinflation force played by China. If you, uh, over, you know, 20 years ago, the wage ratio between US and China, it was somewhere like the US to China was about 30 to one. Now it's about five to one. You can see that a lot of that has been played. China is not cheap anymore. On the top of that, you have COVID and shorter supply chains, right? So that's the impact of China, which was, I think the impact of China on global disinflation was profound, and that's reversing. On the other side, you have the demography, right? If you look at the age of, you know, uh, dependency ratio, some of the working age population in the US, or just with the baby boomers, are just moving to retirement, right? Which means you're going to get the supply labor is actually coming down. So people in the working age population coming out. So you are you are at a point that there is no more need for investment, but at the same time, uh, there's less supply. So that that is on the structural change of that. And then on the top of that, you have the central bank, as you said, the Fed. They are they have moved from modeled inflation target to exposed. So, and you can see the determination to end deflation is is exact mirror image of what it was in the late. 70s. I remember a reading, I wasn't in the market in the late 70s, but Paul Volcker started talking about breaking the back of inflation in October 1979. And they went serious to change it. That was the thing. 
but it took a year or two before the bond market started believing. Right, initially bond bond yields ran up from 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 sixteen to twenty or so percent. Uh, so the bond market didn't believe it, but when their determination was to break in inflation, they did it. And the thing is, it went on, and then it just it corresponded with the rise of China and all that. So it led to this massive disinflation or deflationary period. A lot of those factors, a lot of those drivers are reversing that. Uh, central banks are just adamant to get inflation. Uh, they, 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 we are seeing a, quite a great demographic reversal. And the rise of China in terms of production on investment or you know, what we've seen in terms of uh, capital growing, terrible investment and and uh, the labor force of China, uh, it has reversed. I mean, over the past 20 years, we've seen China, China's labor had introduced or added 120% to global supply of labor. That trend is not going to continue. Um, so I think the next, structurally, we've gone through the period of that disinflation and next one, structurally, we are on the upside. But, you know, the path to from deflation to inflation, there's always a reflation period in between. I think a lot of people are just looking at saying, well, they're looking at this binary thing, deflation, inflation. Oh no, there won't be inflation. So we're gonna stick with deflation. But I think that's a, that just misses the point that before you get to inflation, you're gonna to have to have reflation. They go, you're gonna be able to run global growth at a very hot level for so many years before you can get the overheat into least inflation. And I think that's the story with next, you know, two, three years when we have reflation and rising bond yields. Uh, the inflation will come later and that will be priced in. I think that's the direction things are going. Is it likely that you can potentially have inflation on just general goods and services and at the same time, the demographics is a real negative drag on, on asset price returns as many people try to withdraw their, their superannuation from the system? That's a good point. That's a good point. That's a possibility. I mean, just these guys, you need. But I think the offset against that is the growth, growth part. So there will be pressure on asset prices at the again, like you said, uh, you know, people re reach retirement and retirement age and they need to disinvest. Uh, but on the, the, the offset of that is that much stronger growth. Growth is going to be run hot, so they don't get central banks cutting it short this time, right? But Fed starting the Fed and the rest of the world, even in EM. So I think the offset against that asset price sales, the pressure on asset price, asset prices, is the fact that global growth will be stronger. Um, so that means you know there will be some assets will be impacted, right? So I think the the leadership, market leadership, what assets perform will be very different to what assets performed in the past ten years. Uh, because then it will be essentially with your bonds. But you, great point. There will be push towards up, uh, you know, disinvesting, selling, selling down. But yeah, that will be there will be offset against much stronger growth and stronger productivity that we've seen. We've seen technology, you know, over the past how many years, tech has been all about Netflix and Apple and some of those things. We can waste more time on social media. But you can look at it now, how technology has truly been engraved in every industry now. Every industry is tech tech sector now, mining itself, right? So there's matter technology being utilized in every industry. It's just huge. I mean, coming out of COVID, you know, those companies have a massive operating leverage to using that technology um, to make money um, and, 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 and also, you know, being able to, to generate strong growth. So uh, it will be an interesting next five years. Surely it will be very different to what we had over the past five years. Well, it sounds like you're, you're pretty positive about active management, right? You've talked a little bit about the, the challenges of, of trading in a market that can be highly inefficient. 
for a fund, uh, you know, a super fund, for example, their challenge is how to work out where to spend their fee budget. Where do you think the most um, opportunity for active management then lies? Is it around you know, thinking about the strategies you put together, thinking about the individual companies you put together? Is it around building more sort of option style payoff strategies? You know, what's 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 the likelihood of success of active management look like? Yeah, it's a combination of that. Please. I think uh, you first of all with active management, you need to have uh, well less constraints. And the, you know, the the strategy, whether it be stock picking or be you know top down investing, but then also execution, smart execution. You can have really good ideas, but if you execute it poorly, then it doesn't end in in results. So having these options, having different ways to execute an idea is very important. I think investment houses or asset owners need to develop expertise in execution. Right? Um, and then also you know in, on the strategy side, active active management. I think a lot of the uh, fee budget on active management, obviously, is all gone to private assets. When it comes to public markets, public markets have been really just, as you know, just it's either impassive or quasi-passive, right? And when the, the allocation you have to active strategies, they all have tracking around MSCI. It hardly makes difference if you are 2% underweight something or 5% underweight, right? I, I think you're just going to have to go towards more of an absolute return strategies, right? But clearly understanding the investment process and philosophy of strategies uh, to be able to make a difference, right? Um, there are there are some areas that, you know, active management is not worthwhile playing in you know, large cap stocks. Maybe start using that fee budget towards some of this absolute return. I, I firmly believe if you're going to make a difference, you're going to be more absolute return, goals-based absolute return, as opposed to, you know, when when... Again, so when you're an active manager with a three, four percent tracking against the benchmark, uh, you might as well be on each ETF. Release that fee budget to put it in absolute return strategies where you actually, you know, you can play the themes, um, obviously in a risk controlled manner. Um, and so, again, so to answer your question, I think a lot uh, focus on absolute return strategies, but with, with also um, execution, very smart, smart execution, because that makes all the difference. One theme that's been really popular of late is this green revolution theme, ESG, SDGs. You know, that's, that's one side. On the other side is the anti-ESG portfolio um, and trying to take advantage of the, the imbalances that some of this wave of money is actually creating. How do you think about that as an opportunity and how can you potentially still play it um, as an active investor? First of all, that the green revolution is huge and is here to stay. Right, so the we're gonna see more and more things being run on batteries for the next ten years, right? So there is going to be a massive push towards uh, batteries or you know other alternative sources of energy like geothermal and what have you, right? But at the same time, because of the vested interest in our industry, there's a lot of people just piggyback on those revolutions to just make some quick money. You go look at some of those ETFs that've been provided, right? And you look at the, uh, you know, I was looking at, I, mean, I don't want to name, name, but you, you could look at the ESG ones, right? Compare the ESG ETFs that they provide versus uh, the normal ETF, right? And you look at the amount of uh, apples and Amazons and all those in it, right? It's just, it's very similar, right? So they charge about three times the fee but for a portfolio. It's got maybe a little bit more Apple, a little bit less Apple. Which is, you know, it's crazy. I mean, that's not what ESG is about. Uh, so 
I think there's a lot of greenwashing going on in the market. And I think that's that's just this is an unfortunate reality of our space, our industry, where people just want to come in and skim. Uh, that's just quite sad. But I think when you come to the green revolution, you just look at the batteries. Like play, you you look at what goes. I mean, the push towards batteries, uh, it's gonna be pushed towards high density batteries. When they batteries we can store a lot of energy, right? And what do you need? to material, to think what those batteries all need, minerals, material, right? Everyone is happy to go and buy just buy those loss-making solar companies, just keep buying it and, you know, and speculate on those. But you look at what actually is used to make those batteries is minerals, right? nickel, platinum, uh, platinum, uh, some of those rare earth metals. I, I, I think that is a super theme to play. And that's the thing, we've had a super commodity, commodity super cycle. The first one was the rise of China, uh, which obviously a lot of it was fossil fuels and coal, right? Um, this one isn't China. This is about green revolution and energy transition. Energy transition is, is the, the, the required amount of metals to build those batteries and solar panels and wind turbines and what have it be huge. Um, so, and there hasn't really been much production in those areas. There hasn't been really research and development. Um, and that's, 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 to me, that's the way to play it, as opposed to go and speculate on the company that makes the next solar battery. And that is the growth part. I mean, some solid companies that make batteries and the ones that actually have partnership with auto companies, that make sense. Uh, but I think uh, playing it through metals makes, makes more sense. But I think what, yeah, it's just, you look at through some of this greenwashing that's going on, it's just, it's sad. But it's quite funny because everyone talks about being net carbon by this date and by that date. And ultimately, when you start going down the mining place, uh, there's a lot of carbon involved in, in this process, right? Uh, it's, yeah. it's not yeah, um, the most right. energy uh, friendly or environmentally friendly. Uh, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you can, we don't have enough alternative sources of energy to use that to make more alternative energy. you got to start with what we have, which is a lot of fossil fuels. And I think there would be better ways to use that energy. Maybe natural gas will be kind of a green energy choice for now until we have we have it be more sustainable energy. But you're right, to be able to generate that batteries, you need energy to spend energy, right? And um, not only we're not, we not just reducing the use of energy, we're using more. And then we add that Bitcoin to it and look at the sort of use of energy. <laughs> uh, uh, just imagine if Bitcoin just becomes more broad-based use and I think that's just going to damage, that's going to undo a lot of what we've done when it comes to, you know, neutralizing carb, uh, carbon dioxide. Maybe that's a good place to to finish off the conversation, cryptocurrencies. Um, your thoughts? Yeah, well, you know, when, I, I just, when you say cryptocurrency, blockchain, that is true, right? So digital currency is, is going to come. But I think when it comes to this unregulated Bitcoin, uh, there's a lot more at stake for governments for, to the let that happen. They will regulate it. Um, obviously, Bitcoin and whatever, they will be used by uh, people who just want to shift money around without anyone knowing, right? So there is groups that always will want to use Bitcoin, uh, money laundering, what have you. Uh, but but it's not the direction the world is going. Bitcoin, like I said, it just adds a lot more to global pollution. Its, it's carbon foot, footprint is huge, right? And uh, to me, I think Bitcoin, it's just one of those, you know, if you have populism, in politics, but there's a populism in financial markets too. So you just can't just tell a whole bunch of young generations, oh, you know, you don't have enough money. Central banks are just destroying the value of your money. 
you can't buy a house, you can't buy assets because, um, you know, because it's all rich people, inequality, everyone's got it. But you can get a piece of action by, by Bitcoin, right? And then everyone believes and say, oh, yeah, this is how I get my right. And everyone makes money. It feels good. So you see, I've got my share of the thing. Uh, it's a populism, uh, but it's just in the form of financial markets. And people are fanning it. Um, there are some rich people that can, you know, you know, they can, you know, fan the fuel, uh, fuel the fire. Uh, but at the end of the day, the direction as it, from an energy use to carbon foot, footprint, Bitcoin is not the direction the world is going. So it's not. I don't think that would be the currency of choice. And uh, it's hollow. It's empty. It's based on nothing. <laughs> so we should be thinking of gold potentially then as being the a, a true uh, asset of uh, of uh, rather than being this crypto gold. We've actually got real gold. I think so. That's still a real store of value, and it's got industrial use as well. All right, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Nader. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.